0: Chapter 13, actually. And as you're doing that, I'm going to kind of follow Eric's lead, or take a page out of his book, or however you want to put it. I'm going to begin a little bit differently tonight. And I'm going to just do that by simply saying this. We we have visitors with us on on a regular occasion. We have people that can access the live stream from anywhere on the planet, I guess. So I want to encourage those that are here that might be visiting tonight, as well as as certainly those that might listen to this lesson at any time um, after it is posted on the internet, that quite often in in a lesson, in order not to spend four hours up here and chase all kinds of rabbits, I will make a statement. And I will make sure before I make that statement that it is biblically sound, but sometimes you may have questions. You may say, well, I've never seen that, I've never heard that, are you sure about that? That sort of thing. What I want you to understand is, please, if that is the case with you, if that is the case with you watching, get a hold of us here at the church, let us know your questions. We love to answer biblical questions, and I obviously don't have time, again, to address every little point to its infinitesimal amount of of pigeonholing it. So please, by all means, if you have questions, get a hold of us. If you'd like a Bible study, we love to study the Bible with people. It's what we're all about, is providing biblical answers to biblical questions. So want to get that out of the way. Years ago, in our country, when the churches of Christ were growing exponentially, or multiplying greatly, as, as we are told they were in first century Jerusalem, according to Acts 6 and verse 7. There were several different slogans in our recent history when we were growing that we used or that were used to describe our incredible biblical unity as well as our unique biblical identity as the Lord's Church. These were slogans that were used, and when I bring them up, some of you are going to certainly remember them, hopefully most of you, but these are slogans, the scriptural sentiments of which we appear to, at times, either have forgotten, neglected, or perhaps to our own shame, become a little embarrassed about over time, or. Maybe if we're of some of the, the younger folks amongst us, maybe we simply never knew or heard or learned of these slogans in the first place. Now, the slogans themselves aren't found in the Bible, but they contain biblical sentiments. And you know, it's interesting. When the Churches of Christ were growing in America, these slogans were, were very prominent about that same time. And as we've kind of stopped using them, and they've stopped been using, uh, stopped being, I can say this, they've stopped been being used, close enough, uh, to describe us, our growth has also diminished. And they kind of run along with each other. And so I want to just talk about four of them tonight. Actually, I want to mention four. How many of you remember this one? No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Remember that one? It's not all that old. No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. That was used to describe churches of Christ, because a lot of times you will go to a a denominational church building, you'll see a creed on the wall. We believe this and this and this and this and this. We have ours. We, We believe Jesus. He's our creed. Whatever he said goes. And we use no book but the Bible. We don't need any book but the Bible. Anything that is less than the Bible, is not the Bible we need. Anything that's more than the Bible is a changed Bible, and we don't need that either. So we go strictly by the Bible, and and we were once a people that was known for that. A second slogan, and one that certainly seems as though it could have done us a a world of good, and and maybe saved us a whole lot of hurt over the past couple of years, if if we had all just kind of focused in on it and, and made it our slogan. It was in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things, love. That brings us to the third and fourth slogans that are probably the two most familiar, as well as the two that I'm going to focus on for tonight's lesson. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. Everybody's heard that, right? The other one, or, or one put uh, another way, similar sentiments. We do Bible things in Bible ways, and we call Bible things by Bible names. That's who we are. Or at least it's who we're supposed to be. My question tonight is, do we still do that as much as we could? Now, we do that. We understand, for instance, the church is the people. It's the body. We, we do it a lot. But do we do it as much as we could? Or are we a little more like God's Old Testament people in the days of Nehemiah, whose children spoke more in the language of the pagans around them than they did in the language of the Lord? If you look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 24, we'll we'll talk about this later in its context and and look at it a little deeper. Nehemiah 13, 24 says, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. Nehemiah 13 and verse 24. And and we're going to get into how that applies to us or one way that 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 could very easily apply to us in a few minutes. But but first I want to give us a a little bit of history and, and biblical background that brings us up to this text and the verses around it. As we discussed this morning, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God strictly forbade his people to intermarry with those who were not his people because he knew that those who were not his people would turn the heart of those who were his people away from him. We covered that this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 7. As we also spoke of this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the application of that, or or a place in scripture, we we see that truth clearly maintained by example, was in the case of King Solomon. From 1 Kings chapter 11. He didn't pay any attention to that. He married those that didn't believe in God, that were not of God's people, and it got him into all kinds of trouble. His actions helped lead to the idolatry King Solomon's, helped lead to the idolatry that caused God to send his people into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. Then later on, after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, after God freed his people from captivity, and he sent them back to Jerusalem, guess what happened? Those captives that had been sent there as part of the idolatry that King Solomon started, that whole chain of events, guess what the people that went back to Jerusalem did? Some of them picked it up with those old, same old practices that God said, don't do this. It is in that context that we see the frustration of the prophet Nehemiah unleashed in the text that contains our theme verse, Nehemiah 13. Let us begin at verse 23. Uh, again, the Jews have come back and, and all of this, and, and he sees them starting that same road they already have. And it says, In those days. I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Stop right there. (laughs) Can you imagine a prophet running around grabbing handfuls of hair? I mean, aren't you glad we don't have prophets like that today? Right? I mean, aren't you glad that our elders don't run around when they're upset with us, just you know, plucking our beard hair and all that stuff out? I mean, this is what was going on. I mean, Nehemiah is frustrated. He said, I cursed them. Nehemiah, your prophet. I cursed them, he says. He's frustrated, right? And I pulled out their hair and I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things, as we covered this morning? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, Pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing, all this great evil transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And and he goes on from there. Now, it's not my intention tonight to focus on how they got there, to that situation. My focus tonight is on what that state was and one way which it could affect us today. And, and, And that where they was, where they were, is that, again, verse 24, half of the kids of, the, of, of God's children spoke the language of Ashdod. They, could, they couldn't speak the language of God. They spoke the language of, of Ashdod. And this was a problem. And I'm going to tell you why it was a problem. Imagine today this scenario. You've got an American who, we'll say, three, four years ago, for whatever reason, maybe over in, in Russia in college, whatever. And so they go to Russia and, and they marry a Russian person. So you've got a marriage that is a Russian, not to say anything wrong with that, there isn't Russian-American. But when they have children, the children grow up in the Soviet Union and there's nobody to teach them the American language because one, one spouse is just not even bothering. And, and the other predominant spouse is, is teaching them the Russian language, is teaching them Russian customs. So, what happens with the next generation in that same place? By the time you get through one or two generations, you've lost all of the American heritage, period, all of it. And God knew this was going to happen to his people and that they would be led away to, to follow other gods. And so. Nehemiah is concerned because already, seeing that that a lot of these children that are growing up, they they don't know the language of Judah. They don't know the language of God. All they know is the language of the ungodly pagans around them. And as I think about that tonight, how they could lose sight of, of who they were. They could lose sight of being able to speak in God's language, if you'll allow me to use that terminology. As I considered that and and how it might apply to us, I got to thinking, do we really do that? Do Do we do that? You know who Ashdod was, right? Ashdod, if you remember, was a Philistine city. And if you remember your Old Testament history, the Philistines were enemies of God's people. They were out and out enemies. Um, Many times you will see the Philistines fighting against God's people. Ashdod was a Philistine city. The Philistines, like Goliath of of Gath, had sought to destroy God's people again and again and again. Another another thing you might remember for Ashdod, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, you remember that the the ark was brought up to Ashdod, and it was put in the temple of Dagon, the Philistines' god. And how the, the temple, uh, not the temple, but the, the idol Dagon fell on its face and all of that because of the power of, of God there. And you will recall that when the Philistines basically said, Oh, what are we going to do? This is awful. Look what, what well, we got to send the ark of God back because look at all the destruction that, that's going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. They decided to send the, the ark back to God's people on a cart with two oxen. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to any of us, but it was a big deal to God. When God's people began to mimic the pagan people sending the art back, remember what happened when God's people tried that? Uzzah reached out to steady it, died. David said later on, hey, the whole reason God was angry with us is because we did it that way instead of doing it in the prescribed manner, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, 1 Chronicles chapter 15. So you can see right there, in, in just that one little snapshot, the influence that these pagan people's example had on God's people, even though it wasn't an intermarriage there, just the way they did things. When David copied it, it was very, very deadly for Uzzah. So as we consider all of that, it's easy to get some eyesight or some insight into The frustration of Nehemiah. But here's my question and how it applies to us. And we just need to think about this. As New Testament children of the living God, do we have such a close, intimate, and ongoing relationship with the world around us? Are we so entrenched and enmeshed in the world around us that our children speak more in the language of the world than in the language of God? That's my question. Now, I'm not talking about cursing or, or things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Do we have such a close and intimate interlocked relationship with the world around us that half of our children cannot accurately speak the language of the Bible, but they speak the language of the world around us? Are we so interlocked with the world that our kids can't call Bible things by Bible names, and they can't can't converse in the words and the language of God and his word to the ungodly world all around us? Let me me show you what I mean, and I'll begin with, with one of the easier examples. In the language of the world around us, and I'm going to refer to that as the language of modern day Ashdod, if I may, in the language of the world around us, the word "pastor" means preacher. It doesn't matter if he's married or single. Doesn't matter if he doesn't matter if he's got kids or not. If he's the preacher, he's the pastor. Can I tell you how many times I've been called pastor? I am not a pastor. Never been a pastor. Probably never will be. Okay, not biblically speaking. You see, while the world calls their preacher pastor. Do our children know the biblical language? Do they know the language of of not Judah, but the language of the heavenly Jerusalem, the word of God? Do they know that the word pastor means shepherd, and that the word shepherd means elder? And that in order to be an elder, there is a very specific biblical list of requirements one must meet, including being married, and having at least one faithful child. Do our kids, when they hear the word pastor, do they, do they think in terms of the way the world calls it? Or do they think in terms of what the Bible says? Do they speak the language of modern day Ashdod? Or do they speak the language of God? And we might say, well, you know that uh, it's not that big of a deal. Well. It is to God. Mark chapter 7 verses 5 through 13 when we worship in the ways of the world and according to the teachings of men our worship is vain. Makes a difference to God. What about today when it comes to the situation wherein we see we see this. We see somebody who's headed the wrong direction. We see somebody that is committing a sin that we know the bible says that if they continue to live in that sin that they're not going to heaven and there are, there are scriptures 1 corinthians 6 9 and 10 there's others when we see somebody who's headed down that wrong road not not following jesus like the pictures up there but they're they're headed down that wrong road and they are doing something that is going to be very hurtful or painful or even self-destructive to them eternally And you tell them so. In the language of Ashdod, in the language of the world around us, what is that called? That is called hate. That's called judgmental. That's called unfair. That's what it's called. That's the language of Ashdod. Because I'll tell you something, in the language of the Lord God of hosts, you know what that's called? You know what it's called? Love. Turn to me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. The sermon has a, a lot of similarities to this morning's, including this reference. And again, don't forget the point as you're turning. When you see somebody who is going the wrong way, who's not going to go to heaven because there's something standing between them and God, and this continual thing they keep on doing, God said that's sin and that's wrong, and those that live that way will not inherit the kingdom. And, and you try to tell them. In the language of Ashdod, it's called hate, to correct anybody. It's called judgmentalism. But in the language of God, it's called love. Watch this in, in Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, would you please? Now as he was going out, that is Jesus, on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Watch this now. Here we go. This young man's got one thing that's preventing him from going to heaven. There's something he's got that's standing between him and God. There's something that's got to change. And in the world today, when you tell somebody that, you hate them. You, You are being judgmental. You are being unkind. You are being unfair. The Bible calls it love. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What the Bible calls love, the language of God calls love, the modern day language of Ashdod all around us calls hate. Do our children know the difference? When. They are accused of hating because they're willing to point out something that needs to change. Do they know the difference? Do they know, speak, converse in, and correct with the language of the Lord and his word? Or are they stuck speaking, living, and understanding in the language of modern-day Ashdod? While that might not seem like too big of a deal to us, that's really a big deal to God. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 25. Matter of fact, I was just going to throw that out there, but I'm going to have you turn there. I I want you to see this. It's a big deal to God. Isaiah chapter 5, please turn there. For those who call Christian love hate, which is what's going on with the language of modern day Ashdod, God says in Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine, woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. And he goes on from there. The whole point is, is God is very upset when somebody calls love, in his language, hate in theirs. They call that which is good evil. Number three, if you don't think this problem exists within God's very own people in this world, we need to think again. Remember, our whole point is to call Bible things by Bible names, to speak about Bible things in Bible ways, to stick with the language of the Lord and not with the language of the contemporary world around us. Many of you have probably heard that there are some churches of Christ who have a what they call a traditional morning service and a contemporary evening service. Traditional meaning they sing without instruments basically. Contemporary, meaning that they've got all the musical instruments, amongst other things. While those are terms that the world uses, while those are terms that modern day Ashdod uses, traditional and contemporary to describe those services, those are not the words that God uses. In fact, the word traditional, now tradition's in the Bible, but traditional, that's not a biblical word. I looked it up. It's not there anywhere. Traditional is not speaking according to the language of God. Neither is contemporary. What do those words really mean? Well, God has used some very specific words to describe worship, although they're not traditional versus contemporary god's used some very very specific terms in his word according to his language he's described worship one way he's described worship is in john 3 uh, john 4 chapter 4 verses 23 and 4. worship is to be as you know in spirit and truth what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth it means to worship god with a spirit of humility with a proper spirit that bows down before him and gives him all authority and lets him call all the shots, in spirit and in truth, that is, according to the truth that he has laid down, to truly worship him, by truly letting him be God, letting him call all the shots. We we do music the way he said. We do prayers the way he said. We do everything his way. That's spirit and truth worship. So might I suggest to you that instead of calling a worship service traditional, meaning that we sing without instruments, That's spirit and truth worship according to the language of God, because that's doing it the way God said to do it eight times in the New Testament. He told us what kind of music he wanted. Sing, he never said play. But what about that contemporary service? If that's what the language of Ashdod calls it, and that word contemporary does not appear here, what does the word of God say about that? How does God describe that? Well. If we're not worshiping in spirit and truth, John 4, 23 and 4, if we're worshiping in accordance with what man wants instead, like his instruments, then according to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9 and Mark 7 and verse 7, that worship is in vain. Now, say that's pretty harsh. No, that's pretty biblical. So what it really comes down to is not a traditional worship service and a contemporary worship service in those congregations that have decided to play to those who want it the biblical way and to those who want it a way they have to add to the Bible. They're not really traditional and contemporary. They are worship in spirit and truth and worship in vain. Let's call them what they are. But my question is, do our children know the difference? Do they know and speak and converse in the language of the Lord and his word, or are they speaking and living in the language of modern-day Ashdod? It may not sound like a big deal to you, but it's a big deal to God, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. And if it's not a big deal to you already and you have young children, it better become a big deal before they go off to some (coughs) Christian college or college associated (coughs) with the Churches of Christ where there are many of their teachers that are very much into the language of Ashdod, as opposed to the language of the Bible when it comes to adding instruments to their worship. The fourth and final one that I want to take up is to me one of the most deadly and deceptive and often heard. It is one of the most militantly defended terms in all of our modern Ashdodian culture and language today. I do not mean to be offensive to anybody, but I am so sick and tired of hearing this word used wrong. I am so sick and tired of hearing this word used in a way that would make it something totally different than what it is. And it's a word that we're hearing so much of these days that is overwhelming. That is the term abortion, used in phrases like abortion rights. I want us to understand, and I want for our kids to understand, and I want for the next generation to understand, and I want for everybody to understand. Let's let's just take the word itself, okay? Just take the word itself. Just take the word abortion. Let's just take the word. Forget. Just take the word and forget it. Put everything else aside for a minute, okay? Don't draw pictures, just. Okay? What does the word abort mean? Simple question. Don't answer it. I'm going to answer it for you once you think about it. I recently had an article published on churchofchristarticles.com, and it stated this. The word abortion itself means to stop or to end that which has already begun. Hence, one can only be said to abort a mission Let's think of it in terms of aborting a mission or aborting a missile launch once it has already started or begun. To stop a mission or a missile launch before it has started would be called canceling it, preventing it, or postponing it, not aborting it. You can only abort that which is that which has already started. We cannot miss that. Hence, whenever anybody uses the term abortion, they are admitting by default that what they are talking about is the definite, deliberate stopping of a process that has already started in this case of life. That's it. That's it. There's no other way to look at that word. And so, and we hear in the language of Ashdod, we hear all these these fancy terms about abortion rights. If we understand what the term abortion means, then, then the term abortion rights means that I support one person's authority to stop the life of another that has already begun. That's what the term means. When I say I support a woman's right to choose, I am saying I support a woman's having the authority to choose to take the life that God has already started within her. 63 million times. You really, yeah, yeah. This, yeah, I'm a little touchy about this one. Yeah, I am. Yeah, you know why? I'll tell you why. Amongst other things, one reason is is because my son was due for that very process. Our adopted son. I love my son, but that's not it. That's a personal thing. Probably shouldn't have even bothered to share it. The reason it bothers me is because we hear that term used in a totally different way, like it's some wonderful thing that people had ought to have because of the Constitution and all this in our country. But, but when we're saying that, that abortion rights, it means the right to stop that which is already started. And God, although the word abortion doesn't occur in the Bible, God's got his own terminology for what that process is. God calls such a process murder, killing, shedding of innocent blood. Let me give you a whole list of references. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 17. Proverbs chapter 6, 12 through 19. Jeremiah 32, verse 35. John 8, 44. Romans 1, 22 through 32. 1 Peter 4 and verse 15, they all have to do with what I just said. When you put them all together, it's pretty clear. There are things that ought to come to mind every time we hear that phrase, brethren. Every time we hear that phrase, whether we read it in the p- paper, whether we see it on TV, doesn't matter. When we see that phrase, We had ought to not get caught up in the language of Ashdod. We had ought to understand what the Bible says about that. It ought to come to mind every single time God's people hear that term. It means that I believe somebody has the right to terminate the life of another. That's what the term means. Question. Most of us as adults understand this, but do our children? Our older teenage children who who are closer to the appropriate age for these sorts of things, do they know the difference? Do they know and speak and converse in and correct with the language of what the Lord calls that in his word? Or are they stuck living in the language of Ashdod and and it's so watered down they don't know what the language of the Lord has to say about that? Which, Which way is it? As we conclude tonight, this is my point. We were always a people who were said to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, to do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names, and to teach our children to do the same thing. I hope we never lose that, and I hope if we have lost it, we repent. I love what Eric had said earlier about being different, about standing up and, and letting our light shine. I hope our kids don't just, this next, this next generation, I hope they don't just, because we don't teach them the difference that they buy into the language of Ashdod, like this is some right like voting. This ain't voting. I can use the word ain't down here, can't I? This ain't voting. Let's make sure they know what the Bible says. Let's, know, let's make sure that, that they can converse in the language of God, in love, of course. And, and that's the thing I want to close with is we have a God who is so incredibly loving that even when it comes to that last issue that I mentioned, can the blood of Christ cover that? <coughs> Aren't you glad we have the blood of Christ? Doesn't matter. That song, Light the Fire, Lord, you know where I've been. Doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you so much, He's willing. If you will just repent and turn to Him, and you will just come to Him and let Him lead your life from now on, if you'll be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, there is no sin God cannot forgive. Except, of course, if you, well, there, anyway. There's no sin that God's not willing to forgive, let me put it that way, if you're willing to truly repent. Because the Bible does say there is one unpardonable sin, but that's a different sermon for a different day. Maybe you're somebody who's struggled with some of these things. You need the prayers of the church to be stronger. We'd love to do that. If you're somebody who needs to be stronger when it comes to using the language of the Bible, when you get in conversations with people out in the world that talk about worldly things, shall we say, we'll pray for you. If you're here tonight and you've never had your sins forgiven by doing it God's way, by repenting and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, just as Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 38, we'd love to do that. See, that's some other place we're different, too. We Baptized for the forgiveness of sins because that's what the Bible says. And if that's something you'd like to study with us, we'll be glad to do so as well. The lesson is yours this night. If you need to respond, please come to the front as we stand and sing.